Hey everybody, welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, the not-so-wonderful world of Walt Disney. Last week, Tablet Magazine unveiled its list of the top 100 Jewish movies. It's a controversial list, not least because Steven Spielberg gets the number one slot, but he gets it for E.T. and not for Schindler's List or any of his other explicitly Jewish movies. What's not controversial, evidently, is the complete absence on Tablet's list of any of the animated films so many of us grew up with. I'm talking about Cinderella, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Dumbo, Lady and the Tramp, Fantasia. In other words, no Disney, none. Why is that? Is it because Disney's films don't resonate with Jews? Or because long-ago accusations that Walt Disney was an anti-Semite continue to leave a bad taste? Independent producer Eric Malinsky used to work in the field of animation, and for some time now, Walt Disney, the person, has fascinated him. He's been compelled by the allegations that Disney was an FBI informant, or that he was interested in cryogenics. In particular, Eric Malinsky has been wondering if the claims of anti-Semitism are true and why they remain in circulation nearly 50 years after Walt Disney himself passed away. Here's Eric Malinsky to tell us all about it. A couple years ago, Zac Efron and Daryl Hammond sent up Walt Disney on a Saturday Night Live sketch. But I thought you were frozen. I recently thought out. Science says global warming, but I can't help thinking it has something to do with Jews. This caricature of Disney as a paranoid anti-Semite has been showing up a lot in recent years in shows like Robot Chicken or Family Guy. Brian, we could spend the rest of our lives here. It's perfect. Sounds good to me. Doesn't seem to be a thing wrong with this place. Hello, everybody. Oh, yeah, I forgot. This is a Disney universe. But what evidence is there that Walt hated Jews? He didn't write anti-Semitic manifestos like Henry Ford. He gave to Jewish charities. He even got an award from B'nai B'rith in 1955. Tom Cito is an animation historian and a former Disney animator. He traces the rumors back to 1941. Disney artists had just gone on strike, a very divisive strike, to create a new labor union. Some of these artists, they're in their late 80s, and they're still angry at one another, based on what they did in that summer of 1941. Disney's cult of personality was very strong within the company. Friendships were destroyed based on who sided with him or against him. And Disney took the strike very personally. He tried to ruin the careers of many of the union organizers. But when Tom Cito was writing a book about the conflict, he noticed something. A, a number of the strike leaders were of, uh, of Jewish ancestry. Artists like Arthur Babbitt, who's credited with creating Goofy. And many of those Jewish strike leaders were the same animators that later told biographers that Walt was anti-Semitic. There were Jewish employees that stayed loyal to Walt. In fact, some of them worked with Tom Cito at Disney, and they told him that Walt had no problem with them being Jewish. People like Marty Sklar, who was the senior designer of Disneyland. For, for Disney to risk, basically, one of his biggest gambles was going into the theme park business, and it very easily could have like ruined his studio. So the fact that he entrusted the design of, of the first Disneyland to somebody like that you know, says a lot. It's sort of like that old cliche, you know, some of my best friends are Jewish, so I must be, I must like Jews. The writer John Powers has also researched Disney. 
it's not, it's not rumor to point out, for instance, that in 1938, when the Nazi filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl came to Hollywood, the leaders of, of the studios boycotted her. Disney gave her a tour of the studio. Now, you could say, well, maybe she, he liked her films. But if you look a little more closely, actually, he couldn't have liked her films. He, the only films that were available were Triumph of the Will, a, a ridiculous Nazi propaganda piece. Olympia was not available at the time. Tom Cito sees a more innocent explanation. Riefenstahl had come to Hollywood with a copy of Olympia, her banned film about the Olympics. And apparently she later told an historian. Riefenstahl thinks the reason why Disney wanted to meet with her was because one of the few film festivals he lost was the Venice Film Festival of 1938. He was beaten by Olympia. And it kind of bugged him that he wanted to see this movie <laughs> that, that, that dared beat Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which was sweeping everything at that time. There's another example that people cite in making the case against Disney, The Three Little Pigs. At one point during this 1933 animated short, the big bad wolf dresses up as a Jewish peddler. Who's there? I'm the full of brush man. I'm working my way through college. The American Jewish Congress was not amused. They lobbied Disney to remove the sequence. He made some minor changes years later, but he never understood why they found it so objectionable. Even the Looney Tunes were making ethnic jokes back then. Now we kind of look at these things as, as crude stereotypes, but I don't know if they were thought that way at the time. So the evidence of Disney's anti-Semitism could be written off as gossip, ignorance on his part, or guilt by association. But John Powers is convinced there is something there. And he's particularly interested in a trip that Disney took to Germany in 1935. As part of his research, Powers visited the Disney studio in Burbank, and he asked the librarian. Do you have anything about Disney's visit to Munich? This really happened. The guy looked at me and said, no, we don't. We don't have anything. And so I said, well, OK, thank you. And as I'm leaving, he looks at me and says, well, wait a minute. We do have something. So he went and he produced these microfilms. Of, of Nazi newspapers like the Volkischer Bioboxer, welcoming Disney as a hero against the Jews of Hollywood. Now, that just may be Nazi propaganda. There's no record that Disney met Hitler, though he did go out of his way to meet the other European heads of state, including Mussolini. This discovery fired up Powers' imagination. He wrote a play called Disney in Deutschland that ran in San Francisco that explores what would have happened if Disney met the Fuhrer. The set of the play is designed like um, the room in the Berghof that Hitler used when he would have visitors there, which, ha which had a model of the ideal Germania. Anyway, Disney comes in. He starts playing with the model until, as you can imagine, by the end, it looks more and more like Disneyland. At first, Hitler is annoyed that Disney is playing with his toys. But eventually, he admires Disney's vision of a utopian world. The theme of my play is that there was a thin line between fantasy and fascism. I think that fantasy and fascism can be related when, when responsibility and um, a sense of social justice are not involved. This may be a more fruitful line of inquiry because regardless of whether the man himself was anti-Semitic, his movies and his theme parks had a huge cultural impact. Essentially, it is a celebration of uh, aristocratic power. Professor Jack Zipes studies fairy tales. He thinks the Disney view of the world is strangely medieval. The goal of the classic Disney hero is usually not to challenge authority or strike a bold new path, but to restore order, maybe join the ruling elite. 
Take Snow White, for instance. The final scene shows the prince carrying uh, Snow White off on a white horse into a distant castle. So the images always suggest there is a male aristocratic power that is charming, that is handsome, that is uh, good, and should be celebrated. Zipes says this authoritarian message also plays out in the tightly controlled, ultra-conformist universe of Disney theme parks. Most of these parks are really intended not to animate your mind, but really to exploit you for the time that you spend there. The last few Disney Princess films haven't done so well at the box office, so maybe his conservative vision is losing appeal. Or maybe it's just relocated to the street. A lot of cities are using Disneyfication as a model to gentrify real places like Times Square, Las Vegas, or downtown Burbank. And that in turn might explain why so many cartoons like Shrek and Family Guy continue to lampoon Disney, bringing back these old rumors and accusations. The artists are basically declaring their independence from a world that is becoming more and more Disneyfied. For Tablet Magazine, I'm Eric Malinsky. to look. That's why it's in the vault. Disney ratted out animators for being communists? Sure, they were union rousers. They had to go. I heard he was anti-semantic. Semantic. But look, why don't we go watch another season? Eric Malinsky is an independent producer based in Brooklyn. We want to know what you think about Disney's legacy. You can send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. And if you want to take a look at Tablet Magazine's list of 100 top Jewish films, we, of course, encourage you to do so. Come to our website, tabletmag.com, see what all the fuss is about, and give us your two cents or even five. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Ivry, your host. We thank you, as ever, for listening to us, and we do very much hope you'll join us again next time.